0: This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Rinella. I'm here with Jill Grennan and Todd Wilkinson. Jill Grennan has been a behind-the-scenes Hunt Quietly ally for what Jill about a month or so you've been helping me helping helping us helping us like helping the hunt quietly mission you've been lining up podcast guests and you lined up tonight's guest and graciously agreed to join he and I for conversation so we're here with uh, Todd Wilkinson as well Todd you are I guess you you're a writer is how you, how you'd characterize yourself probably right first and foremost
1: Yeah, I've been a journalist for 37 years. Um I uh present I founded a thing called Mountain Journal which has a quarter of a million Facebook followers and I still am a correspondent to Nat Geo and The Guardian and You know, I've written for hook and bullet magazines and uh, all kinds of publications. I started as a violent crime reporter in Chicago. So um, that's my training. But I'm an upper Midwesterner. Uh, I grew up just north of Minneapolis.
0: Okay. And you're, I guess you could, another hat that you wear is one of an, an, an environmental advocate.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting. I wouldn't call myself um, a conservation advocate in the traditional sense, though I am obviously conservation minded and, and all of that. Um, what I think is most important these days, though, is the truth. Um, fact-based subjectivity and objectivity, you know, objectivity in its purest form is a myth. Nobody's truly objective. Um we all bring our perspective and point of view and life experience, right? And I think what's important is um, to be able to have, uh, in the best case, peer-reviewed science to back up where we are on things and in the absence of that, um, you know, experience, right?
0: Mm, yeah. I think if science as, is is Carefully orchestrated experience, like
1: peer reviewed.
0: Well, what I mean is, oftentimes when science is at its best, it's experimental. So, yeah, we're, we're gathering sense data, but in a very orchestrated way in right. which we've held maybe everything constant except one thing, right? You know, yeah, um, yeah. I just finished a project I've never done a pro- I'm a research scientist I've never f- done a project like this where half of it has no empirical content in it. Yeah. It's it's purely analytic. Uh so it's can't be re- there's there's nothing to confirm or refute based on the experience you know and then the like the the second half of it was like fleshing out fleshing out the findings through empiricism because there's some little details that you couldn't that you had to rely on sense experience to to flesh out you know what i mean but it was the most absolutely it was the most one of the <laughs> most interesting things i've been involved in we started out with this question about how to devise seed mixes to reduce cuz i work a lot on s- fixing screwed up land yeah how to devise seed mixes to minimize the chances of the plants developing very low densities which generally leads to them going extinct and then the project not work the seeding project not working and we were able to get quite a ways down the road as to how those should be the number of species and, and their rates that, that we were able to get a long way down the road as to how those could be, should be constructed without any observations, which I thought I was really
1: fascinating. I'd love to join you out there and write about that project.
0: <laughs> um Well, maybe you could do a, maybe you could do a popular press piece on it. Excellent. All, we're also Hunt quietly has a, a writer. That's we, several of us have been contacted by Jill might be contacted by him eventually. I just need to put Jill on his radar, but he, he this guy writes for the guardian and, um, a couple other high profile publications. I can't, and you gotta, you gotta forgive me here. But like I am encountering so many names that I can't, his first name is Chris Chris. I can't remember his last name, but anyway, um, I'm pretty excited about that prospect that in terms of like spreading the word about what we're trying to do, that that there might be a, a magazine article, but, um, so we're going to get, we're going to, we're, I'm hoping that we spend the vast majority of time talking about, yeah, let's go with that. You first, but you just before we started recording, you said that you value what we are doing and you think it's important. And I I was looking into what you do. I've been looking into what you do with Rocky Mountain Journal. I mean, I mean
1: mountain, mountain, journal. Mo- mountain, mountain Journal. Mountain Journal. Nonprofit.org. Yeah, yep. nickname Which Mojo. is, lot, I mean,
0: just in a nutshell, is like heavily focused on conservation issues in the Greater Yellowstone, right? Yeah. So when I look at that, I think I see that as so much more important than what I'm doing. That I'm surprised that you would think that what I'm doing is important.
1: No, look, man. Um, what you're about is speaking integrity into the tradition that we grew up and that we love the outdoors. And, you know, I can't speak for any other hunter. I'm not going to be presumptuous with that, but the outdoors has given me so much. And um, if I may just quickly, so I, I founded mountain journal in 2017 i had had been involved in a oh, writing don't book. do
0: this quickly i mean I, I, okay yeah yeah do
2: and, and todd make you explain out. explain what um the greater yellowstone ecosystem sure. or area is yeah yeah yeah
1: sure so um in 2017 i founded this online publication called mountain journal mountainjournal.org and it it came in the wake of a writing project I was involved with with the known, well-known science writer David Quammen. Uh, he and I were neighbors in Bozeman, and together we wrote an entire issue of National Geographic magazine. David provided the narrative, and I wrote the caption for hundreds of photographs. And that was one of the most widely read issues of you know, the grand old Yellow Magazine. And it was focused on Yellowstone, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And there were a lot of issues that were raised in there. But for me, it, it was what we needed was sort of tenacious coverage, not a one-off, uh, because lots of issues were raised. And as bo- both of you know, and as your uh, viewers know, you know, this was prior to COVID. And so even prior to COVID, Greater Yellowstone was being inundated with lots of people. Lots of people moving here and a huge spike in the number of recreational users of public land. And so what was happening is um, there was a squeeze that was going on between development pushed up to the edge of public lands and a lot of users on public lands. And Um, For viewers who are unfamiliar with the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, it's about 23 million acres. Um, The vast majority of that is public land, but 6 million acres of private ground, uh, largely situated between the mountain ranges and the valleys, provide crucial winter range and corridors for wildlife movement. And, you know, people in the Midwest, uh, where I grew up, we don't really understand um, the migrations that occur here between high and low ground seasonally. You know, very important to follow the green wave up into the mountains for ungulates, huntable big game species. Um, The quality of the grass being there affects fecundity, reproduction, um, healthy herds, all of that stuff. And that in turn supports, you know, predators. We have a predator guild here in Greater Yellowstone wolves, grizzly bears, black bears, mountain lions. We have all of the original mammal species that were here in 1491. We're the only place left in the lower 48 that has all of those species and they're all able to move. So the ungulates move over, cover huge distances, 12 different major elk herds that spiral into Yellowstone in the springtime. We have the longest pronghorn migrations known in the world, the longest mule deer migrations known in the world. You know, we have mule deer that start in winter at the southern end of the Wind River Range in the Red Desert, and they migrate one way uh, several hundred miles up to Island Park, Idaho, through roads, through hunters, through predators, through uh, on the edge of civilization, and then they go back again. So what we have here is is really extraordinary. And while it's, you know, it's likened to the Serengeti, it's not in it that you have millions of wildebeest and zebra and everything else moving across it. But you have these migrations that are really important to ecological health. And so what Mountain Journal does is I look at the intersection of humanity and wildness um, Looking at the true issues of coexistence, not these um, these shibboleths, if you will, of sustainability and balance and all of that stuff. It's it's you know the rubber meets the road with survival of these species, and we have one chance to get it right, uh, as you know, and as both of you have championed. You know, we had we suffered this depletion of species. Uh, at the end of the 19th century into the 20th century. And Greater Yellowstone is the cradle of North American wildlife conservation. So we've brought all these species back from historic lows, and they're still here. The problem is, is that if we lose them again, we will not be able to rewild them. And So our challenge today is, how do we prevent this incredible... um, miracle, if you will, of biodiversity here from becoming de-wilded. And so that's what makes me passionate. And what so what Mountain Journal does is we look at the wider West through the lens of greater Yellowstone, since this is the last best of abundance that remains in the lower 48 states. So what lessons can we learn elsewhere in the West? And in turn, um, what can we learn from successes and mistakes that have happened elsewhere.
0: Yeah. Um one second, I'll be right back. My dog is out there just barking at apparitions and it's driving me crazy. I don't know if you can hear her, but
1: no. Jill, how are you doing? Come
2: on. I was muted. Sorry, Todd. I'm doing good. How are you doing tonight?
1: Good. Good. I've been reading your your stuff. You do great stuff. Well, thank you.
0: Um, Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. So you guys, a big part of your focus is bringing attention to the negative sides of developing land there in in that part of the world.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a lot of inspiration that you'll find at Mountain Journal, but there's Mm -hmm. serious attention paid to what happens when lots of people inundate wildlands. And, you know, this isn't any mystery. You can look everywhere else in the country where there was wildlife diversity. And when you put a lot more people in the space of animals, It never, there's no scientific evidence to say that that benefits the animals living there. And, you know, uh,
0: my last guest last night was, I've been podcasting so much. I don't know why I keep, like, I have way more than I could put out for a long time right now. I don't know why I'm doing so many, but I had Scott Fitzwilliams on, you know him. He knows you at least. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know where he is now?
1: Uh, is he in Cody?
0: Nope. He's he's the forest supervisor for the White River National Forest in huh. Colorado, which huh. is like where all the big ski resorts are.
1: Yeah. Did and you talk about elk declines there?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He, he reached out to me and wanted to come on because he's very concerned about a lot of the same things that, you and I are concerned about, and you know, and he's a hunter, so he's concerned about him both through the lens of a hunter and for the lens of how to how is this forest gonna continue to provide all of the values it does to society when it's when it when it's being so stressed. And yeah. he, he was saying with elk there that and maybe you know this, but it's actually this they're starting to see. They're starting to get evidence that it's the summering grounds that the the environmental or the conditions in the summering grounds that are negatively impacting these elk. Like that, there's so many people in the high country that the elk are getting pushed out of off of you know quality feed and meadows and things like that. Um, Yeah, had you heard about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we have that in Greater Yellowstone as well, of where elk and other species are being displaced off of public lands onto private ground, um, coming into conflict with ranchers. You know, the other thing, and the, and the variable here is whether one believes it's human caused or not, um, climate change is affecting grasses in the high country. You know, they're drying out earlier. And those grasses are so important, highly nutritious. They set up um, cow elk example, for example, to have a successful pregnancy uh, that that she'll carry through the winter. And you know, when you have poor poor grass or you have uh, animals that are pushed out of preferred secure habitat to areas where they don't want to be, and nutrition suffers, that ripples throughout can ripple throughout a population and. You know, um, poor physiological health makes animals more uh, su- uh, uh, susceptible to predators. Um, it it makes them weak when they they face these harsh winters. You know, lots of things that are happening that aren't necessarily obvious to most people, who are, even those who live here. So, uh, lots of very interesting things going on, and it and it, again, it relates to human pressure on these lands
0: i've been looking at the peer-reviewed literature on what hunting pressure does to wildlife yeah because i'm trying to battle this narrative that hunting is necessarily conservation i you know like all there's always always it seems like no matter what a push for more hunters and uh one narrative is we need more hunters to protect our rights as hunters which is not something I'm convinced by for a variety of reasons that I won't go into here but um the more salient one narrative is we need more hunters because hunting is conservation but man there's a lot of literature to suggest that the, the that intense hunting pressure is not good for wildlife and particular with elk I just I was reading about the study where there's these this was down by it this was in this was in Wyoming somewhere. there's these two subpopulations of elk, that summer on public land up high, and one of them intrinsically migrates to private land. and the other one, its natural winning ring area is on is on public land. Well, the one that the subpopulation that winters on private land begins migrating in mass around September 1st with the opening of bow season. Yeah. So they're like, and then they, you know, verified through LIDAR data that which give you a green, a green greenness index, which is highly correlated with protein content and energy levels and forage that that, uh, you know, th- these animals were some sub- voluntarily subjecting themselves to poor for quality for- forage quality for two months, r- rather than be up where all the bow hunters were. Whereas you know, the the ones that migrated onto private, they just gutted it out out up there because they're like, well, even if we go down low, the forage, qu- forage quality is going to be low, and we're still going to be getting hunted. Uh, so I'm always like, there's all kinds of other things, all kinds of other papers about all, that have measured other things. But uh, just trying to bring that point to light that more isn't always better.
1: Well, no, right. And, and you've been incredibly courageous for bringing this out before the hunting community. Um, for the- Not really,
0: because I work in another field. So it doesn't.
1: I Look, even to talk about this is considered a betrayal in some corners of the hunting community. And, you know, let me just, if I may, if you don't mind, um, I'd like to kind of set the context. I've been looking forward to this conversation that we're going to have. And I want to talk about briefly, if I could, the sort of spiritual essence of going afield. You know, I grew up north of Minneapolis, I had a trap line. In fact, it's a trap line on a, a one of the rivers where Dave Meach, the most eminent wolf biologist in America, he still goes there and he traps muskrat and mink. So you know those mornings of rising before dawn and going out on a river in hip boots. Um, able to understand nature and see things that I never would have otherwise. And it's one of the reasons why I became an environmental journalist, actually. But, you know, so I I grew up hunting and fishing in the land of 10,000 lakes. You get on somebody's back 40, there weren't a lot of public lands. Um, All three of us know how special the West is, is because of public lands and, and, being able to get on but you know the question i would pose to any viewer is this you know there were days when i would show up at a river on the opening of trapping season and i would get to this place that i'd been checking out for months and i would get there and there were traps set there and you know my heart sank or You go out to a woodlot and there are other hunters there. Or in the West, you're on one side of a draw and all of a sudden hunters show up on the other side of the draw and maybe there's elk moving down the draw and you're, you know, there's a chance you could get shot um, going down both, either side of a draw. Or, you know, you go and you fly fish on a stream and you show up and, and. People are either already there fishing this stretch of stream that you love or they show up. I know no hunter in his or her heart who relishes having more people pouring in to the places that mean so much to them that they've gone back to year after year. I'll, I'll end it on this. You know, I, I love chasing grouse. I grew up chasing rough grouse in Minnesota, and I love chasing blues here. But, you know, the difference between the late 1980s and today is that these areas where I used to go, and I'm not going to name them on your podcast because I don't want them to come under more pressure, but they're hunted out basically. Um, It used to be this sacred thing for me in the fall to be able to go hunt blues um, and get a great workout in. And now people just, they're coming in with dogs and they're going through and they're like mowing up grouse in the fall. And qualitatively, it has changed the experience. So for people who will say, claim that more hunters moving into this space has improved the quality of the hunt or made wildlife populations healthier, um, I can provide a long list of examples of where that ain't so. Mm. Does that resonate with you?
0: Yeah, yeah. But people are so okay. So people that I talk to, that everybody in the everybody in the hunting world that has a that has a voice makes money off yeah. hunting. Yeah. So, except maybe Jill and I now. Uh, uh, and so they're not going to say that, you know, it's, it's gotta be all unicorns and rainbows. It can't be that promoting hunting and trying to draw more people in is anything but good because, well, if you're a hunting TV person, by definition, you're, I mean, like Maybe not by definition, but it's hard to argue that you're not having an impact on bringing people in. So you have to argue that that's just categorically a good thing, you know, and and the nonprofits are just absolutely committed to hunter recruitment. And that's because it's an expectation of their industry sponsors. So they're certainly not going to look at the other side of the coin, you know. So it's like everything is pushing like they nobody will acknowledge that yeah, there's places there a lot of places in this country that could stand a little less hunting pressure.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, things changed radically over the arc of my life. Um, from when I went through hunter safety um until today. And you know, in the early days in your local newspaper in the fall, you would have maybe photos of a dad and his daughter or dad and his son or mom and their kids. And you'd have a photo of the Big Buck Contest, right? And that would be all the publicity. And it was a thing of honor there. And there wasn't... There... You know, there was no description of blood sport or anything. It was this wholesome tradition of going into the woods, and you also didn't publicize where you shot that big buck. And so, in this social media age, you know, it's one thing to share information, but it's another thing to put a giant billboard on where these animals are. It's quite another thing to be monetizing. You know, social media would be very different if it were, was just a, a media in which we're sharing stories about the hunt, rather than having a commercial angle on all of this stuff. Anytime that something becomes an industry, because industries only know growth, you want to push a bottom line. It's the same thing in the outdoor recreation industry. And You know, this this thing has changed. I think we need to have an honest discussion instead of talking about um, unicorns and rainbows and be talking about qualitatively, you know, recruitment, recruitment to hunt. People want to be drawn into things that have virtue and value. That resonate and. I don't find social media media to be particularly conducive to those heartwarming tales of going out on the hunt. You know, it, it's not only a monetizing thing, but it's a thing of keeping count, right, on how many fish you're taking out or whatever it is. That's radically different. And if you really want to have an have an honest conversation, and we do, um, something fundamentally has been lost. I think we have to look ourselves in the mirror and wonder why hunting numbers continue to go down. And when you you have an area like the Rockies that still has these, these big game animals here, you have a higher concentration of people swarming here than you do in other places. This is radically different than hunting whitetails in Michigan or Minnesota. It's, you know, whitetails are a weedy species doesn't matter how many you kill, really. I mean, they're going to bounce back. But we have these highly discrete species in the West. And so you have a lot of people pouring in here. And you also have a lot of people building here. And, you know, we're not going to be able to sustain these wildlife populations if we don't have great habitat. And that is the big threat these days. The other thing that I would say is I have a lot of friends who are outfitters and guides, and I don't see a lot of them beating their chest talking about the areas where they're, you know, where they're permitted to take clients. In fact, they don't like a lot of people showing up there because it affects the quality of their experience. And so that this notion that more numbers or more recreationists, you know, If you ask me, what have I done in my life as a recreationist, I would say probably all of the above. I snowmobiled the hockey practice, so this isn't motorized versus non-motorized. But, you know, something has fundamentally changed where we can't talk about limits anymore. Public lands are the last frontier where we refuse to accept limits in order to preserve a quality experience. And uh, I'm gonna share a little secret with you guys. You know, I, I my wife went through hunter safety and my daughter went through hunter safety and my son went through hunter safety. And you know what? They don't wanna hunt. And they don't wanna hunt in part because of just the black eyes that hunting has gotten. And they don't, you know. So, so where are they coming? Is, at,
0: where are they? Where are they experiencing seeing these black eyes?
1: You know, they're getting they're getting it in the schools. There's a lot of social pressure on kids these days. You know, with moving away from meat diets and things like that. Okay. It, it's not and, that they were. And you live in Bozeman. I live in Bozeman, so yeah. you know it's a mix. It's a mix of people who moved here to have a relationship with the woods and it's other people, urbanites, who have no relationship to hunting. You know, hunting is they they don't speak the language of hunting that we, we grew up with naturally as sort of that's what you do in the fall. And there was integrity and there was a, a tradition, um, at least with the people that I hunted, um, you know there were rules and it wasn't about, it wasn't about necessarily the animal. It was about everything about the hunting experience besides taking the animal. And that's what I'm so fond of in in memory. And that's what I wanted to impart, you know, to my son and daughter, but they're just not interested in hunting. And they weren't exposed to these tales of woe about hunting for me. They were, you know, I brought them out into the woods and um, that's the kind of thing that we're, we're facing. So this numbers game, you know what? I'd rather have hunters who are ethical and appreciate quality experiences rather than just having a zillion hunters out there just to call them hunters. Um, but that's, maybe that's just me.
0: I don't, I, well, okay. So raw hunter numbers to me, I, I don't see them as that is the, the at all, like the salient, um, re reflecting the salient reality. It's, it's, it's acres per hunter, you know, yeah. so like, if I, I think that if the numbers of hunters have, has declined and there's some, there's that's not entirely clear i don't know if you know the outdoor life writer andrew mckean
1: yeah sure he
0: he wrote an article two years ago we have no idea how many hunters there are uh and this is a magazine that for for a decade or more has been bemoaning the decline in hunter participation and then they wrote that article but i'd say it doesn't matter i mean we we there's another guy that hosts episodes of this podcast. He just had a guy on a few days ago that wrote an article. He's a research scientist, wrote a, a, a paper that was published in in uh, Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution last year. Lost between, depending on if it's private or public land, between 3 and 8% of habitat for endangered species in the last 30 years. I don't know why it would be much different for game species and then a much 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 bigger factor in my mind is what's happened to hunting leases
1: yeah yeah exactly so it's like
0: places that used to be at 15 people used to hunt this thousand acres in the midwest for deer now it's two guys that hunt that the two guys that can afford it you know afford to pay the most for it and every you know, and everybody else is scrambling where for, for someplace to hunt, whether it's on some little wildlife management area in Ohio or coming out west to hunt. You know who predicted this a hundred years ago? Aldo sure. Leopold. Uh he, he I wish I, I had pulled this up because it's real eloquent, but he said that. He was said in 1919. He said in the Journal of Forestry. He had this article where he was saying that as the the pressure on national forests in the West is going to increase dramatically as hunting gets more expensive and uh, there more than there's more you know calls them shooting preserves as shooting preserves become more prevalent like private land this for hunting gets is because more more prevalent land use in the western or the eastern half of this of the country. Yeah, he, at that time he also wrote. Here is one thing I do have. It, this is in nineteen nineteen. He wrote in a previous article. I have made the following assertion, which has so far not been disputed: the demand for hunting on the national forest exceeds the supply. In, in 1919 according to that yeah. same article he says in there that there was 5 million, 5 million hunters at that huh. time now there's hmm. probably a lot less game you know because that was before like all the wildlife um are all the, the 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 restoration of a lot of the wildlife populations
1: yeah yeah, I mean, um, you're a Midwesterner. I remember driving through rural Minnesota and it was rare to see a whitetail. And it's hard to imagine that, you know, in this yeah, day. Yeah. It, yeah. Right. You know, it's interesting. Uh Leopold talking about public lands and you know, private lands again are really important. Uh just a few miles from where I'm sitting south of Bozeman, uh, between the edge of the city limits and the beginning of the National Forest, and a mountain range that runs all the way into Yellowstone Park called the Gallatin's. You know, this winter, elk are running frantically between the subdivisions out there. And you can't hunt those animals anymore with a rifle. You have to use muzzle loader or bow hunt them, right? And it's a long season. And so we're here. We are in this this boomtown, the fastest growing micropolitan city in the country, uh, with people pouring in here, particularly uh, more so since COVID started. And we're losing that ecological function of, you know, part of a famous skeleton uh, herd that Leopold knew about, uh, that Gifford Pinchot knew about, that uh, Olas Murray came up from Jackson. Olas Murray, one of the seminal elk biologists in America came up and said, you need to protect that. And, you know, these days we've got a lot of recreationists there, hunters and non-hunters And then, again, we have development pressure um, that's pushing up. And so these animals that we love are getting squeezed. And I I don't understand. I I just honestly don't understand why sportsmen's groups who say that they're conservation minded and environmental groups who say that they're wildlife minded um, aren't willing to talk about these development issues and human pressure issues that are coming to bear, and you spoke um, with your friend from Colorado, and you know we know where this is headed. We yeah. it, it isn't it isn't a mystery. There's no place in the world where you put a lot more people into a space that are inhabited by wildlife, and it benefits the species living there. There's no example of that. And I, I don't understand why this is so hard for people to understand or why it's considered controversial because it's not, it's, that's the way it is.
0: Yeah. I don't know that hunters are any more this way than non hunters, but. W- w- Cause I'm so focused on hunting issues when it, I, this small group of people that I Talk to about these things, yeah. um We call them shoulder shruggers, yeah. Like people, not. Oh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know. And I don't know if it seems like you're probably you have got to be with what you're trying to the point you're trying to make have got to be that complacency has got to be there in spades with what you're trying to do, just the same as it is with what I'm trying to do.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And again, I want to go back to the Midwest, um, where it was mostly private land hunting. And I I go back there today, and those woodlots where I used to hunt whitetail or, or rough grouse, you know, there are they're subdivisions now.
0: Same, yeah.
1: And you know, it's heartbreaking. It's that's in the past now, and the shoulder shruggers, you know, they pretend like we don't have a choice. And for those people who are parents, do they want to send their kids to a classroom where the student to teacher ratio is 300 kids to a teacher? Or do they want to send them into a class of where it's 15 to a teacher, 15 students to a teacher? You know, when you go to a concert, um, do you want to be in a small quaint place, or do you want to go to Shea Stadium, where even the Beatles couldn't hear themselves sing? Right. In every aspect of our life, we accept limits because we accept the trade-off that comes with that. And and to your point that you just spoke about earlier, and you know, I I know that some people have said you're such an elitist um, that you're somehow opposed to. Um, people hunting, which I find ridiculous, but what's more elitist than only being able to hunt because you can afford to get on a piece of property? I mean, what about what about the poor slobs? Does that mean they don't have a place or does it mean that they all pile into a given area in a national forest? I mean, how long does hunting quality, how long is hunting quality elevated and, ver- you know, how, how long does that stay when you have a lot of people pouring in there?
0: No, it's, yeah, it's, I, I, I'll, if I'm hunting someplace in the mountains and it, and there's, and there's too many people, I'll hike another five miles to try to get away from them. I mean, it's just, it's the dominant factor. Yeah. You know, like anybody that thinks that that, that's just like a minor inconvenience to have more people to have other, another party breathing down your neck when you're hunting that that's just a trivial little thing. They don't understand hunting very well.
1: (laughs) Well, well, exactly, man. And you know, I want to share a quick story. There's a guy, a good friend of mine who passed a couple summers ago. His name was Joe Gatkoski and joe went hiking hiking until he was in his late 80s into the wow. gallatin's and he would pack out his elk wow and one year i was writing for a hook and bullet magazine that i won't mention and i wanted to do a story about this guy joe gutkowski to honor him you know old school um
0: why aren't, you gonna, Navy, why aren't you going? Why aren't you going to mention it? Just
1: keep I, I just I don't want to go there. Um, okay, I, I don't want to get Zumbo'd. Um But oh. you know, so <laughs> so so I'm telling the story about Joe going into the Gallatin's, and he gets up there, and he says something to me at the tail end of my interview with him, and he says. But, you know, I hate those sons of bitches that I go in a couple days early and I get set up and I'm in my place. And then on opening morning, you hear... Like he was people.
0: camping back in there in his 80s.
1: Yeah, he was camping. Damn. He, I, In fact, he once walked out of the backcountry or crawled out with a broken leg. So that's how tough he was. But, you know, this old school Leopoldian-like conservationist, and he told me this story in in our my chat with him, he said, you know, but I hate the sons of bitches who on opening morning, you can hear the roar of the ATVs coming up from down in the valley up, up there. And, you know, the elk would disappear at that. And, you know, he said they want to get up there on Sunday morning, um, shoot their elk and then be back in time for kickoff to watch their afternoon football game. And I thought, huh. That's interesting. You know, I thought it would resonate. So I put that into my story. And the editor of this well-known, widely read Hook and Bullet magazine called me up and said, what do you got against ATVs? I said, I don't have anything against ATVs. What I'm pro of is quality hunting experiences and for people who are willing to work to get their animal and this guy's virtuous. And then he said, Well, what do you say about all the para and quadriplegics who need to get into the backcountry? And, you know, look, who's opposed to having a wounded warrior or having someone who has a disability going on a hunt? I know no one. No one would raise their hand with that. And there are ways to make sure that people can hunt. But this notion that you have to have an ATV to ride up there. Um, or that you're going to hunt off of a forest service road and that you're not willing to do any work. You know, the best hunts, you talked, just mentioned that, you know, if you run into people, you're going to hike five miles further. That's the way it used to be. Those are the kinds of stories that are worthwhile that you take down into the bars at the end of a hunt. And you say, you know, I out hiked, I out people and I, I, that's how I got my elk. But so, as a result of that, I was never invited back to write for that magazine again. Okay, because- so, do you
0: think do you think that he, that he was really concerned about those that those passages being off putted off putting to people with disabilities, or was there something else?
1: Well, great question. And the answer was, is that when I then flipped through issues of that magazine, there were six or eight, six to eight full page advertisements from ATV manufacturing company. Okay.
0: Yeah. You know what, what's, what's funny is well, I I've never, I I've never had an opportunity to learn this before, but now I'm confronted with it daily is that when there's money on the line people like try to not understand what you're saying like try to make the case that they don't understand what you're saying right uh there's an umpton, umpton Sinclair quote that I came across that just like uh it's very hard to get a man to understand something when his paycheck depends on him not understanding it
1: Exactly.
0: Like, that, that's like the kind of weak argument I'm confronted with all the time. Well, what about the people that are that uh um that need the quad runner because they're missing a leg or whatever? It's like, come on, of course. Like, okay, everybody but them can't do it. How about that? You know?
1: <laughs> well, well, I- I- exactly. And you know, so you know, you mentioned Leopold. I mean, let's talk about Roosevelt and Boone and Crockett, right? So we talk about principles of fair chase, and then we talk about, you know, the North American model emerging in, in, in the last century. Um, you know, there's a provision of that that talks about non-commercial, not commercializing wildlife, right?
0: Yeah, that's also North American model. How is this American not an, an issue
1: of commercializing wildlife? What's that? How is that?
0: How, how, what, what is not commercial? What is,
1: well, well what no, is, I mean, you, you, you invoked the Sinclair, um, quote, which is accurate. I mean, I get oh, that. Really. okay. Well, yeah, yeah you know? I would
0: argue that a lot, that anytime that somebody's on social media w- with a, doing a grip and grin and there's gear tag hashtags underneath it. That is commodification of wildlife. That's, and the same thing with hunting TV, where there's a ticker tape of the, all the products the guy's using running underneath, underneath the on the bottom of the screen. You know, yeah i i I think that that all is using dead and dying animals to sell products and and uh, but it's, I don't know how you
1: well, I don't well know how look, you
0: combat it. But yeah, that's my take I, on it.
1: I I mean I I want. I want to say something here, and I want to look the readers in the eye, our viewers in the eye here.
0: The, they're I am, the, uh, we don't have viewers, we just it's, have it's, listeners. Okay,
1: yeah. I so I'm speaking into your ears. I am pro hunting. I am pro wildlife. Um, I am pro making a living. I am pro everything that your viewers or that your listeners value. I'm pro that. But, but, you know, we can't – for people who know the price of everything and the value of nothing, it's this intrinsic value that makes our life magical. It's what makes hunting and fishing magical. Um, you know, hunting and fishing is not a team sport. I mean, it's not a sport where you – Go into a stadium, and it's not the Hunger Games. It's you're out having a relationship with nature. And if you do it right, you can do that with your kids or your loved ones. And there's nothing more powerful. That's to me, that's legacy. People can disagree with that. I don't care. But for me, that's where I make meaning out of being in the outdoors on this stuff. And everything gets warped, everything when money gets on the, gets on the line and it's based on a growth model, because when you apply a growth model to things that are finite, what happens? That's how you exhaust resources, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And the, and the, and the, the thing that's, the the bottleneck that kicks in most quickly is, is access to, quality hunting land land with with you know huntable populations that aren't completely freaked out so that's (laughs) that's the where the market forces exert their influence the most it is there that's why that's why according to outdoor life the number of leased acres in this state went from 7 million to 28 million between 2012 and 2016 that's why we got this group this company land trust that operates right there out of bozeman that's gobbled up 400,000 acres of land in montana in the last two years since they started much of it out of the hands of block management yeah right yeah it's it's the same yeah the the marketing of hunting the biggest effect of it in Negative effect for the grassroots sportsman community, the like the people that do it for hidehorns, meat, personal satisfaction, the spiritual element of it that you're describing. Um, they're being most negatively impacted because they're losing access, because that's the thing that's most valuable to a hunter.
1: Yeah, it, well, it, exactly, and you know, you said something on uh, one of your earlier podcast that also resonated. And that was, you know, this really cool thing of going to a farmer rancher and, and being gracious and knocking on the door and, you know, may I hunt your piece of property. And in the old days, there was always this cordiality there. Even if someone said, no, you know, my family's out there hunting now, but usually you could get on and, you know, leave a bottle of whiskey or something there. And over time, you develop a relationship with people who are on the land. It's really cool. Yeah. You know, pay to play is not necessarily conducive to that. Um, I don't know what percentage of people keep coming back um, or not. But if it's just a checklist, um, you know, a bucket list of I'm going to go hunt, antelope in eastern Montana, check that box and never see the landowner again. I mean, there's something sad, I think, that gets lost in that, in the, again, commodification of, you know, people who are buying up these places for recreational properties and have no relationship with the community. Um, These are not necessarily people who are volunteering to coach the sports teams, or showing up to PTA meetings, or are gonna pull you out of the ditch when you go into it. This is the kind of West that I love of of rural, authentic, genuine people. And I I think a lot of that is being lost. I, I don't know how much you've heard about this, but being out in Miles City, you would have you're certainly closer. You know, I've I've heard in recent years of people who are coming on to hunt Huns and they'll pull their Airstream and they'll go from BLM campground to BLM campground and they'll just set up and park there for weeks on end going around and hunting. And, you know, that's a different that's a different kind of experience than, um, you know, families pouring in and going out there on a limited budget and going after after birds. of. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't yeah. know. Some, something has changed and I, um, for those people who say we can't scrutinize it, um, that's absurd.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask a couple questions about you've been at this since 2017 yeah. and one thing I could get, I one thing I get from like in terms of action items, things that you that you think society could do that would make a difference in in terms of saving the 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 ecological integrity of the greater Yellowstone, w- one of them is being careful about development, right? Right. So, yeah, have you have you had any successes there? I know it's like what you're trying to do is bring attention to it, but do you have any? Is bringing attention to it like led to any kind of positive political action or anything like that?
1: You know, so money would be a game changer in all of this stuff. You provide the right incentives and people will do the right thing by the land. So this isn't me trying to socially engineer anybody, but, you know, here in Montana and Wyoming and Idaho, there's three states that converge around greater Yellowstone There is this antipathy toward zoning. And I'll give you an example so that the local land trust, look, what's great about conservation easements is, you know, willing participants voluntarily engaged in an easement where, you know, a, a private property owner will put an easement on his or her land and it's deed restricted to prevent development. That's really important. It's cool. They can get tax breaks, all of that stuff.
0: Yeah, my wife, so, my wife has a, a, her family owns a guest ranch over in that, I don't live with my wife. She lives on the other side of the state, but uh, their, their ranch is in a nature conservancy conservation easement. Yeah. Did you hear about yeah. this House Bill 462?
1: Which one March- is that? There are a this lot is, of bad bills.
0: This is one that would strip. Thirty million dollars a year of pot money, yeah, from from the Habitat Montana program, which is a program that it gives the the landowner gets forty percent of the value of the land. It's run by FWP for putting their ranch or farm in a conservation easement. They have to institute some conservation practices and allow some public access. Yeah. We need that's something we need more of, not less of, but.
1: Well, well I I think you're absolutely right um so the conservation easement thing I'm just going to give you a microcosm thing that can be extrapolated across you know the western montana western Wyoming in the mountain areas um you know the valleys are being hyper developed right now and so in the Gallatin Valley we have the Gallatin Valley land trust a great organization they've put 52,000 acres under easement. But guess what? In the last decade and a half, we've lost 100,000 acres to development. And it's not just the home. You know, impact doesn't stop at a home. I'll give you a figure. A grizzly bear will exhibit avoidance behavior if there's a house on one section of land, i.e. a square mile of land. And grizzly bears are indicator species for 240 other species. So you asked about what can we do positively? Uh, Let me throw a few things at you. So we need to be able to generate money. And in the West, the state legislatures are handicapping the ability of local people to go to the polls and tax themselves. In the Gallatin Valley, citizens here have gone to... uh, Pass an open space bond where we, we tax ourselves to create money for the land trust. You know, but the legislature, they talk about local control, but they're really not in favor of local democracy. They they don't want that. They they're anti-tax um, to a fault. So here are a couple things. Since COVID arrived, if you look at real estate sales in Jackson, Teton Valley, Idaho, Big Sky, Bozeman, Paradise Valley, billions of dollars in real estate have exchanged hands. It's moneyed people who are coming in and who can afford the real estate. So guess what? If we had a real estate transfer tax, which is basically a consumption tax, a a modest 1% tax, because if you can come to Bozeman and afford to buy a million dollar home or several million dollars you can afford a 1% tax that would generate hundreds of millions of dollars out over time that we could incentivize people to not develop their land another thing you know we know about Pittman Robertson and and others but we should have a backpack tax every outdoor user should be assessed a tax. And it's ridiculous to say that when you buy your North Face coat, that you would balk at that purchase if you had to pay two, two extra dollars to do that. That over time nationally would raise hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. It would dwarf the land and water conservation fund. Mm. So another thing.
2: Wait, Todd, I have a question both, on that. Do you know why that hasn't happened yet?
1: Um, well, so the outdoor gear in- industry pushed back. They claim that they pay tariffs because a lot of their goods are manufactured overseas. But, you know, what it does is, is it's a serious deflection um, because their clients, all of us, I, I'm one of their clients, we are consumers of the outdoors. By being in a place we are consuming the outdoors, we're displacing wildlife. And so the outdoor industry was opposed to that. And it was, um, there was a bill called CARA that came online at the tail end of the Clinton administration and the outdoor gear industry beat that back. But, you know, we should all be paying our fair share to be able to use public lands and be able to protect habitat if we value wildlife. So, you know, there there are things like that. There's if you look at Bozeman and Jackson, the two busiest airports, respectively, in Montana and Wyoming, where you have two and a half million employments, people coming in. If you had a modest emplayment fee of five dollars to get off the plane and five to get on, and so it's a ten dollar fee, you do that. You you know you have tens of millions of dollars annually that you could incentivize landowners to protect conservation, you could take the pressure off of game wardens and people with state wildlife agencies who feel like they have to fundraise for their jobs and pay their mortgages and send their kids to school and save for retirement off of license fees. Right. Yeah. But, but what if we
0: which manifests itself (laughs) as manifests itself in a lot of perverse incentives. (laughs)
1: No, well, that's exactly right. So, if we take money off the table of this and we provide money, you know, we could make conservation instead of it being viewed as a liability and asset. And that's the only way we're going to save this place. We've got to think differently. And then, lastly, is this, and this is really important. Every one of your um, listeners own the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Two national parks, five national forests, three national wildlife refuges, a big chunk of BLM land. Um, There are a couple of uh, native reserves here. There's the Wind River Reservation, which is huge. Um, All of those come together and provide vital habitat in this ecosystem. And so we, we have to have a plan. There's nobody calling for a plan. We talk about the ecosystem, um, but there's no leadership coming from the federal agencies to have a unified plan, none, to unify us across boundaries. We talk, talk a good game about ecosystems, but we need to bring in the 20 counties, which is where the rubber meets the road on private land development.
0: These are and 20 needs- counties in, in the that are in Greater the tri-state area that were that constitute yeah. the Greater Yellowstone. Okay, and,
1: and most of them are opposed to zoning, right? Mm. So you can incentivize zoning, um, and there's no way that we're ever going to protect the habitat that ne- it's needed with the free market alone, because the free market has been a dismal failure in protecting habitat across the country.
0: Even though, so, even though, like, and this is something I've seen that you've argued, even though that. There's a lot of revenue. I mean, intact ecosystems and wildlife that viewing and all this stuff generates a ton of revenue. Right? Like well, like if we we'll do keep to- it, if we do keep it intact, well it, it's a major revenue stream.
1: Well, well, right. So I, I want to throw one more thing because I, I, I so love mixing it up with both of you. And uh, Jill, I want oh, you to... I know, wa-
2: I haven't talked much.
1: I want you to jump it's in. But So there, there's a, a, a bill in Congress that says when a species gets listed, you have to consider the negative impacts on the economy, right? So... Let's say that that had existed and that would have prevented grizzlies from being listed as a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act in 1975, okay? So in 1974, if all of the hunting tags that were issued in the three states had been filled, all of the bears left in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem would have died. So, oh,
0: okay. They were, if they had issued more tags than there were bears.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so if we had, if we had not listed grizzly bears based on them only being viewed as a liability and did indeed, indeed in 74, they were viewed only as a liability because they ate livestock or um, you could sport hunt them or if you were a rancher, you could just go out and, and blow a bear away. Right. So, bears get listed. State of Wyoming says, you know, we spent upwards of $60 million on bear recovery since 75. $60 million sounds like a lot, but it isn't very much money over half a century nearly, right? Mm -hmm. So we stopped hunting bears and we focused on habitat protection and what benefits grizzlies benefits all the other species. So today... In Greater Yellowstone, just between two national parks, Yellowstone and the adjacent Grand Teton National Park, between $1.2 and $1.5 billion a year is generated through nature tourism. So you're still with me on this. Mm -hmm. So the three top attractions are in Yellowstone, going to see Old Faithful erupt, wolf watching, and grizzly bear watching. In fact, people have said they'd be willing to pay double the entrance fee if they had a higher chance of seeing bears. Many of your listeners have heard about famous Jackson Hole Grizzly, 399. I've I've written a book about her uh, featuring Tom Mangelson photographs. I would hazard to guess that every year, there's at least $60 million generated. She's the best known living bear in the world and people want to come and catch a glimpse with her. So they fly into Wyoming or Montana and and they go to Jackson. A recent study said that wolf watching alone was worth $83 million and grizzly bears have even more mystique. So if we only measured, if we had not rescued bears and brought them back from the brink, we would have a major missing chunk in this sustainable economy, 1.2 to 1.5 billion. People come here because it's rare to see a grizzly bear in the wild, right? So if you think about, our challenge is not to screw it up. It's with all these species. Our challenge is don't screw it up. And the way we don't screw it up is we've got to protect the habitat. And furthermore, I just want to mention this. Again, it doesn't matter where somebody is politically or whether they believe the science of climate change or not. doesn't matter. I'm not going to argue with you, though I find the science to be compelling. What we know when landscapes become drier and hotter to speak to your point about grass and elk in Colorado, same thing here, what we know is that it puts wildlife on the move. And there's a word out there that we get here tossed about called resilience. And what resilience means is that wildlife, when they get disrupted on a landscape, they're gonna to need to move more. So their habitat needs are greater, not smaller. And at the same time, We're squeezing critical habitat between private land development and public land human use. And we know every other place in the West where there are huge levels of human recreation use, you're not gonna be able to bring back grizzly bears. There's lower tolerance for mountain lions. You'll never have wolves again, likely there. All of these things come that when you have more people, you actually end up with less tolerance for these species that are charismatic but difficult to live with. So there are all of these fables out there that get conjured. And one of the big ones is you you talked about hunting equals conservation. Recreation does not equal wildlife conservation. There is Almost zero evidence to support that, and particularly in areas. So if we follow the model in Greater Yellowstone of Moab or the Front Range of the Colorado Rockies or the west side of the Wasatch in Salt Lake City or, you know, the Santa Monicas in Southern California or the Sierras, if we follow that model, and we know this from the science because it's crystal clear, we foreclose upon the opportunity to have healthy wildlife populations into perpetuity. And the last thing I just wanna say, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be long-winded here, but there's this other fable that suggests the more people who use lands, the bigger the constituency for conservation. That's not true. Because when people become users of a particular place, and then you tell them that science says this human presence is hurting wildlife, they will fight until their dying day to prevent you from limiting their use of that area, even if it's to benefit a species. So what you do is you create this access, and they become dependent on the access, and they're not willing to give or to limit themselves on that. So um, you know, it becomes this turf war. Then, so does that make sense? It makes
0: sense. And but your prescription would be then there's got to be some kind of uh, of 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 limit on recreation. Um, is that that's got to be a piece going forward if we are going to have elk and mule deer and grizzly bears and wolves and all the stuff that we so much cherish in the Greater Yellowstone. A piece of it is going to have to be uh, limiting, limiting humans on the landscape to some extent, managing it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and look, I acknowledge here that I'm a pro wildlife guy. I'm a pro wildlife journalist, but I don't expect everybody to be pro wildlife. You can choose not to be. I had a discussion recently with a, a hardcore mountain biker and I asked him this question. He had just moved here from Orange County um, in Southern California, had had helped sponsor one of the largest mountain bike races there. And I said, "You know, things are different here than they are in Orange County, aren't they? Oh, yeah. And I asked him this question: In forty years, will his son be proudest of him that he forced his way in to allow his son to ride twelve miles? in a sensitive part of the gallatin range where we have all of the major mammals that are still there at the expense of those species or that is dad fought to protect that part so that wildness could still persist yeah and so is it all is it all about us because 80% of this country is intensively manage to suit our needs. And then the remaining 20% to varying degrees suits our needs, right? So greater Yellowstone, there ain't another one over the next mountain range. This is it. This is our test to really find out, do we value wildlife or not? And are we willing to to limit ourselves? Because we know where this is going. We know where it, what the end game is for all of this. And so we may decide as a society that wildlife doesn't matter. We don't. I would guess
0: it. that. I I I would guess that that's where we're going to go. If I, if I was a betting man, that yeah.
1: Well, doesn't we, we, disappoint- this will be
0: the Alps? This will be the C- the Sierras. This will be the White River National Forest in Colorado. So I I don't. I take a dim view that we're going to get our shit together and actually do something meaningful about it. But. Um, I applaud you for trying your efforts like mine. Like I say publicly accessible non-pay hunting has declined for every one of my 40 years as a hunter. And, yeah. um, I think it will just continue to decline, but I'm speaking out on the 1% chance that something can be done about it. Um, so, but I, I man, I wish you all the success in the world, but man, I think, I think that you and I are both jousting at windmills. <laughs> to be my well,
1: guess. Yeah, I, all we can do is all we can do is try, and the people remember we're living in the future of people who thought all was lost and kept trying. Yeah, and we have a recovered ecosystem because people said things that were unpopular. Or the masses hadn't caught up with an Aldo Leopold, and and I'm not comparing myself to Aldo Leopold in any way, shape, or form. But what I'm saying is is that the baton has been handed off to us. And you know, I would say to the hunting community, everything that we beat our chests about is based upon limits, game laws, everything was about embracing limits and having virtuous conduct or more virtuous conduct than ma- market hunters. And so for those people who say we can't do it, you know, are they, are they really following in the tradition of the people we claim to venerate? That's the question I would ask.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. I, I guess when I, I'm, I often say that, that I'm pessimistic, highly pessimistic and i don't know why i guess it's just because i am it's really because i am like i look at these sorts of issues like your issue the issues you're focused on the issues i'm focused on and i really do not have a lot of optimism would you recommend if you were me that i hide
1: that no man i mean you know try to take a more uplifting view no I, i look to become milk toast or to take a disney approach to this stuff you know everything good in america has come from conflict everything and we can't be conflict averse um you know this isn't this isn't um the lorax speaking here or this isn't um some fairy tale tale stuff. It's Wildlife needs our voice. It really does. And if we can't save wildlife, look, we hear all this stuff, um, social justice stuff about diversity, equity, inclusion. And I'm like, right on. You know what? We need to create a more equitable America. I get that. And I'm on board with that. And I'll, I'll go to the mat on that but why not affording diversity equity and inclusion to wildlife why why does diversity have to be at odds with biodiversity and you know look elon musk dreams of going to mars i say go for it man you'll you'll be there for about a month and then you'll see these that they don't have these animate objects Non-human objects moving across the landscape, and oh, that's a great image. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I yeah. mean, seriously, I go there, Elon. Go and colonize that. Take your ilk there and do it. But, you know, it's okay for us to be an advocate for wildlife. And, and, and I'll just say this: you can't stop, and Jill, you can't stop. You are really important, really important in this stuff you know this is the great fight um, people will never will never hold it against us for advocating for wildlife and wildlife is the great unifier and it's something this is something that i say when i give talks if you go to the polar bear cage at any major mu- at any major zoo you'll see this neurotic creature swimming back and forth cuz it's confined but in front of the tank, you'll see kids. You'll see kids of all nationalities and backgrounds and socioeconomics and genders, and they're all sitting there smitten. And you know what? There's no problem with those kids. They're infected with biophilia right there. They get it.
0: Yeah, it might be their- that's a that's a E.O. Wilson coined that well, term, right. didn't he? Yeah. Right.
1: But, you know, it might be their parents who argue and, and dispute over things. But what we have in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is we have the wild manifestation of those polar bears that aren't contained. And do we want to live in a world where the only animals like that are captive animals or they're so rare? You know, this thing that we have of animals being able to be free willed and go across a landscape. If you believe in freedom and liberty and you can't get excited about the freedom and liberty of a grizzly bear or a bull elk migrating hundreds of miles, I mean, I I feel sad for you of what you're not contemplating. Do you
0: have people that are well-versed on the issues that are detractors? like? I watched your YouTube talk where you presented all these myths. Yeah. And one myth was it, well, there's enough land here that's protected that we don't need to worry about wildlife populations in the greater Yellowstone because there's already enough land that's never going to get developed. And do you, do you find, do you encounter people that really do think that, that we don't need to worry about frag, habitat fragmentation because there's A- enough there?
1: A- absolutely. And
0: do you think they're arguing and some of them are arguing in good faith?
1: No. Well, that, that's the point of the commercialization of wildlife, right? Is arguments get put up deflection and and people who would argue that are ecologically ignorant. Um, you know, the hunters I know pride themselves on what they know and their wood sense that they have being out in the mountains or the forest. And, you know, realtors need to read a Sand County Almanac. Land developers need to read a Sand County Almanac. Um, you know, one thing I would say say to both of you is that, so I've been at this for 37 years as a journalist. And a couple of things that you, you're you taught as a journalist is, you know, you, you've got to be able to back up what you say with facts. I mean, you know, I don't want to be called out on something. I have a source for this stuff, and the vast majority of it is peer-reviewed science, but science alone doesn't tell us what to do. It generally tells us what consequences might be. So, I learned new things every single day and have been humbled. I mean, where I started compared to what i where I am today has shifted. Look, man, my uncle in Minnesota was part of this posse that jumped on snowmobiles and killed one of the last wild wolves in my county. Wow, so I started with this these thoughts these negative thoughts about predators because i was raised into that culture and science has has proved otherwise so these myths that we live by we need to we need to be able to confront the myths and the reason why myths are so dangerous is because bad public policy is often based on propping up the myth so growth for example all growth is good prosperity You know, the real story about development and sprawl is that sprawl doesn't pay for itself. The costs get pushed upon taxpayers to provide new schools or uh, expand sheriff and medical use, medical services and roads and all this kind of stuff. And our taxes go up as cities sprawl. Why is that? That's because growth isn't paying for itself. So we need to be able to confront this stuff. And, and you know the, what I love about this, the great irony, is that conservation is a fiscally conservative proposition. I tend to be fiscally conservative. And I don't ask people to support, to, to subsidize my income. Why do we have to subsidize the income of developers? Oh, when wow. did we ever agree to that?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. That more public money is needed the more sprawl there is. Is that kind yeah. of a way to summarize that point?
1: It is. And so what happens is counties approve a new subdivision to pay for the last subdivision that wasn't paid for itself. Oh-huh. So yeah. it, there's a lot of great literature on that. Um I yeah, really so Bill,
0: I guess the the the, the cure there is just to build vertically in a small area.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. I mean, Bozeman could solve its affordable housing problem. If we built two 50 story high rises and just got it over with, but, and
0: then we'd have all that surrounding areas, our playground and for wildlife and stuff, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: This is something that, Tom Robbins wrote about. You know, the guy that wrote, what are those, what are those, some of his books, like all those fanciful books about, um, Oh, I can't think of a single Tom Robbins book right now, but Was still, writer
2: still life with yeah, woodpecker. Still
0: life with woodpecker yeah. And, yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. He wrote about like that. He, he thinks that he thought that in one of his books, he, puts forth this idea that we should just have all the housing and the whole all we should all live in the, an area the size of texas and the rest of it just be all natural
1: yeah
2: todd i think i've heard you make a quote once maybe it was from brent brock or something that if you love the wild west live in town
1: yeah i yeah, mean say that. yeah yeah that that's one of the mantras mm-hmm. yeah. of mm-hmm. um yeah. you know i I wrote a book on Ted Turner. And um, one of the things that was thrown at him was he flies around in an airplane. And if you look at his 2 million acres of ranch land, he sequesters a lot of carbon. But apart from that, you know, we're all hypocrites in some ways. The trick is to not let that hypocrite card paralyze us so that we don't enter into the fray. I mean, again, just because we're hypocrites doesn't mean we can't uh, fight for what we think is the right thing. And you know, something that Ted Turner said I think is really applicable when we when we think about how formidable these challenges are, what Ted said is, look, on a planet with eight billion people, if all of us every day got up and we did one positive thing, more one more positive thing than we do negative things, We would transform the world in quick time. So, you know, if we all consumed a little bit less, and I'm not talking about taking out your cans in the recycling bin, but the, the wild country that remains, these last fragments of it, if we just all agreed to consume less for a better common good, we could we could preserve this place. Now, am I optimistic? No, I'm not. But this is this is the great cause of our time.
0: But somebody, so, ha- yes, yeah, somebody has to do what you're doing because no, like, what,
1: hey, what you're doing and what Jill is doing. This well, isn't. You. Yeah, but what's like,
0: you are just stating the obvious fact that no one is stating. The greater Yellowstone is going to cease to be what it is. Do we want to do something about it?
1: You know, it is. That's the question. And I don't presume to know what everybody thinks, but I, I'll say this related to that polar bear analogy. I don't know of any human beings who hate wildlife.
0: Yeah, agreed. I don't. I don't. I don't either. I mean, do we just intrinsically find them captivating, animals captivating?
1: You know? Right. Yep. So Jill, I'm waiting for you to grill me here.
2: <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know that I have any grilling questions, Todd, for you. I've just been grappling with economic sustainability and how that relates to ecological sustainability and social sustainability in places. And you'd brought that up earlier um and just within the hunting community when you see so much money being passed and how do you get to a place of not consuming the finite resources we have to a tipping point and how like how do you get to a place of economic sustainability
1: well i so i i don't know what the answer is but <laughs> i knew i do know this and you know from interfacing with the federal government Mm
2: -hmm.
1: is we've got to be having these conversations Mm -hmm. because we don't have the conversations. This stuff is never talked about. We need to be talking about the trade-offs that we have and the, the words that we use matter. Really? I mean, I hear all the federal agent land managers use words like stakeholders and balance and sustainability. But what does it really mean? Yeah. For whom and for what? And why is wildlife always, why is it always homocentric stuff? You know, the irony is, is, is that indigenous people in their oral traditions, almost every tribe has this reverential um, attitude toward wildlife because animals allowed people to exist. So in most of those origin stories, it's about, you know, bison giving up their hide and their meat in order to sustain people. And I think that's that's kind of sustainability is it's an important point. And yeah, I wonder how much
0: of like the the problems, our problems arise because like the, the, the Christian tradition is so important in our society and that, that is absent from the Bible. Like, the Bible is all about these animals are for, here for you, you know, to consume. They're here for you to monopolize. It, there's none of this, like, there's there's no being thankful for wildlife in the Bible. It's this, this very dominion, dominion-orientated dominion perspective on wildlife.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would love to see a person go out and make their living with their mouth. You know, it's, um, these critters, I mean, I believe in sentience that, you know, they do have their, they can think, uh, they have a wherewithal out there in the land. Um, I've seen, you know, I wrote a book about Grizzly 399, who's one of her cubs was killed in the roadway. And, she came and dragged the cub off the roadway and she was bawling. And there are stories in Yellowstone of bison, an old bison bull that will die and other members of the herd will come up and stand around. You hear about that with elephants in Africa and stuff. And, you know, I've I, i I've got a dog nearby here. You know, why is it so hard for people to... Um, to look and love their dog and hate wolves. Well, I I don't understand that. Um no. but I don't want to get into wolves on this this podcast.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, hunters have very strong opinions about wolves. So, but I don't you know. I'm glad there's a few wolves around. I think they need to be managed. I I wonder about this Colorado thing with introducing them there, what that's going to be like. Um because it's such a artificial landscape there now.
1: Well, r- right, exactly. And you see what happens when urbanites um, create referendums. Um, and in these rural states, they don't un- quite understand that Western Montana, with its urban populace, I don't know where it's going politically, but, um, you know, you run that risk of... Uh, of alienating people. That's why I wrote a piece at mountain journal about the legalized practice in Wyoming of being able to go out and run down coyotes with snowmobiles.
0: Yeah. I, I read that. I read that <laughs> article. Um, God that is freaking disgusting. Like, how could you, how could somebody think be, how could somebody say that they're concerned about the antis and still be doing stuff like that? Exactly.
2: So we should probably what, what you guys are talking about more in depth because people might not understand what yeah. you guys are.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Yeah.
1: Go ahead, Go ahead, Todd. So, so I wrote a story in, in the state of Wyoming. Um, coyotes are classified as predators, which basically means vermin. And you can basically um, destroy them any way you want. In 80% of Wyoming, you can do the same thing to wolves. Um, you can pour gas in their dens and ignite it. But in Wyoming, there is this sport, and it this speaks to social media. In parts of the snow-covered West, there is this sport where, pe- where people will go out on their snowmobiles and chase coyotes down until they're exhausted. And in some cases, they'll just run them over rather than shoot them humanely and put them out of their misery. And uh, very controversial. Uh, Some of the practitioners said that this was a form of hunting. I wrote a story about this. It created this um, national outcry talking about this. Hunters disassociated themselves from the Snowmobile riders, snowmobile riders claim that they were hunters. Um, two bills or a bunch of bills came up in the state of Montana and in the state of Wyoming. They didn't even get a full hearing to just say, no, that isn't how we treat wildlife. But again, in Wyoming, uh, coyotes aren't treated as wildlife, they're put in this convenient other category. And so You know, this notion that we can't even condemn things that are, you know, if we went to Hunter Safety, I I wrote a piece about this. If we had had gone to Hunter Safety and we had told our instructors that we can't wait to pass and get our snowmobile permit because we're going to go out and run coyotes (laughs) down on our snowmobiles, I don't think they would have passed us out of the class.
0: I like to think not. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: And that article too had a lot of really great quotes from, you know, prominent figures in the hunting community, just condemning, not only just condemning that, but just a a complete concern over many of the issues that Matt and the hunt quietly movement have brought up. Yeah.
1: Right. We can't afford to, we can't afford to get, get black eyes like that. I mean, it's, if you're going to recruit, you know how many how many families thinking about well i mean maybe some uh were entertained by this but you know uh, anyway people will decide will think what they want
0: yeah yeah i don't know i i guess when i was a little kid i'd shoot chipmunks for no reason you know so it's, it's like a, it's a stage in life where people, for some people, a lot of people, a lot of my friends were the same way. We'd we'd shoot anything our parents would let us really, you know, they wouldn't let us shoot songbirds um, or we would have been shooting songbirds, you know, it's it's like, it's got, it's got to be that kind of impulse, you know, now it's like, as a grown, as an adult, I can't, I don't like. Causing any kind of unnecessary suffering to anything. It's only because I'm going to cherish the meat that I can bring myself to kill a game animal.
2: And then to post it.
0: On social media. Yeah, the
1: voyeurism part of yeah. it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's
0: a huge part of what I'm concerned about is that I think a lot of animals are, die- that are, are dying that wouldn't die if that wasn't an option. If it, if it wasn't for putting them on social media, if it, if that's part, that's that, the, the benefits that go along with that are part of the motivation for haunting.
1: Right. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, huh. I, I have a question for you, Matt. Yeah. Um, I mean, how did you get into this space I, again? Um, You know, I, I mean, given your bro and all that stuff, um, it's for you I, again for you to do this. For anyone to speak out on issues like this, it is really important, and it requires courage. It shouldn't it shouldn't have to require courage, but you're out there talking about this, and, and Jill's on this podcast. And again, I I greatly revere you. It's I mean, how did how did both of you get to this place of where you're willing to raise these issues? Because it'd be far easier not to talk about this stuff.
0: Well, okay. Do you want to go first, Jill? Sure. go for it. So one about about seven or eight years ago, somewhere in there, I I uh, got on the board of back of Montana Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And that was the first bit of giving back I ever did as a hunter. And once I started getting involved with the board, I was like, this isn't, if I was going to give back, this is, these are not the things that I would do. I would, I'd be focused on completely different set of issues. Um, and so that just led to me quitting and saying, "Okay, I'm, I'm going to focus on what I really think the issues are. The issues are um, the that the 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 hunting personalities, the 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 people that are, the the personalities that are being modeled to the next generation of hunters, like what's being modeled to them by the hunting celebrities." is extremely counterproductive what's being modeled as success is is gross to me so that's one thing yeah um this this push for more and more hunters that was like the big one that really pissed me off it's like all of the survey data that's out there that shows that crowding is a major issue huge issue And it's like that—you never even stop to think. I tried to get a couple questions on our membership survey when I was on that board. Do you want to see more hunters in in the field, and if so, how many? And like, they wouldn't even enter. They would not even put those questions on the survey. I'm like, okay, now I'm really starting to think that. uh, What else? I just assume that you that these organizations, like Turkey Federation, Ducks Unlimited. Elk Foundation, BHA, et cetera, et cetera, that they were looking out for us and they had it covered. And I'm like, if I, I'm getting a gag order on some reasonable questions in the survey, what else are they you guys doing that that it's it's obviously that you're you're trying to appease the hunting industry rather than doing what's right by the sportsman? So it was a steady like and I started to just kind of question this received wisdom that hunting is conservation, that uh, we need to recruit more hunters. And, and, and then I, and, and I've always been repulsed by like the, the bragging and, and like the using dead and dying wildlife as a source of entertainment, even though my brother's into that, you know, like I thought, Early on with his show, I kind of gave it a pass because there was a conservation message. There was a using what you eat message that I thought was good. But now even that's gotten like where these, these hunting influencers, it's just another way of showing the good life and how they're living the good life. Look at me with my elk steak. Aren't I great? You know, so even that is just now kind of a outward facing thing. Even when you're cooking it, it's like this, you're using that to show how cool you are, you know? And I just, I think I, like, it's just a personal, hunting's a personal private thing. It's not something you should be getting, need to be getting like clapped there, slapped on the back, patted on the back for all the time. She's like, just if you love it enough to do it, just shut up and do it, work on the conservation, work on the access, the stuff that's important, but just quit using it as a way to develop a public persona. You know, I I don't know. That's, I just see a lot of downsides to it. To, you know, uh,
1: uh, just a quick question. So what's the end game? I mean,
0: I, when I started this, I wasn't trying to change hearts and minds and I, I, and I I still really, I just thought that I was saying all the stuff that everybody thought and that there would be this groundswell of support. I still think I speak for the silent minority majority. I just think that the silent majority isn't on social media and probably doesn't even listen to podcasts. So it's like, you know, um, I don't know how you. I don't know how I tap into those people, but I, I would. I mean, what what percentage of the people that hunt never listen to po- a hunting podcast and never, and aren't on aren't on, on Instagram, you know?
2: Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm one of those because I would have never found out about this podcast. I'm not on social media, and I. Wasn't previously listening to many podcasts at all before somebody sent me a podcast with Matt talking to a different host, and it and I had been thinking about these issues for a long time um, with within the recreation industry. Todd, we've talked about that a little bit. Uh, that just that industrial size growth of the recreation industry and the hunting industry, and with the amount that the hunting industries pou conservation it just seemed more reprehensible to me and that I wasn't because like you guys I started hunting before social media so I could see like a, a big divide and a big difference even between friends of mine that, that had started hunting after social media and so even though I wasn't on it I could see the effects of it it's almost like the sober person in a room of drunks right you're cause I'm not on it and not really participating in it. And I, and I started like disassociating from it and was pretty much happy being in my own little hunting world. And I, I am part of, um, a VHA chapter, um, where I am and and it's a great group of people. And so I, I was involved, you know, with, with local issues that way. Um, and I still am, um, But then I got I got sick. And it was the first time in seven years that my kids actually left me alone while I was sick. And I had the the thought, Oh, I actually have more time to start doing stuff. And I started reading more and, and listening to more and thinking, and it seemed like Matt was almost doing this hypothesis, like where he was throwing out this experiment, and he was willing to have his mind changed and was asking people for input, and asking people to come to the table. And because it had been something I had been thinking about for a long time, particularly um, the the piece about the hunting industry getting so big and are we giving back enough and um, and the monetization of wildlife and what it's going to look like for my kids in 20, 30, 40 years. Um, those were the pieces that were yeah speaking to me particularly. So I just reached out to Matt and then he called me, I think the next day. Right, Matt? Yeah. Two days yeah. later. Yeah. Actually, yeah. oh go ahead. Oh no, go for it.
0: There's just even though so, even though there's a bunch of people out there that I do think think all this stuff that that Jill and I and the rest of the people that are working on this on this little hunt quietly movement think the people that are online have an asymmetrically huge effect mm-hmm. on everybody else. Because, like what I think is that hunting TV and hunting social media, they cause jealousy and greed, which leads to um, commodification and privatization of wildlife. I just don't see how that could be any other way. So I think that people, I I feel sorry for, like I, I know some really, some people that are just not, I know some hunters that know nothing, of what, really good hunters that know nothing about what goes on with the hunting media. All they know is it's getting very crowded and they can't bang on doors and get at, and get permission anymore.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. That, and, that sucks.
2: And Matt, we were talking about this a little before that yeah. we just, the hunting community, we never had that conversation. Like social media just kind of came and people started running with it. And there wasn't a, there was never a check. Or balance that i remember
0: yeah no there was yeah it just happened organically without any kind of yeah until it got to yeah at
2: this point
0: you know people yeah. that don't even hunt that i know that i meet or whatever and it's this topic comes up they get what i'm saying in about two minutes mm-hmm. you know what i mean
2: well, because I think it reflects in many parts of their lives. It doesn't have to be hunting. It's
0: yeah. people
2: are doing it in the skiing industry, in the peak bagging, in every single aspect of outdoor wreck, or maybe even other spaces that I'm not
0: familiar with. I've been I was telling Jill the other day I'd love to get a surfer and a mountaineer on. Because I I think that any human activity where crowding is an issue should be reserved for the people reserved for people that do it for the love of it, you know? And like, those are two human activities where crowding is a huge issue, you know?
2: But I don't know that you can parse out the people, you know, people on social media aren't necessarily doing it for the love of it. I mean, some people probably are, and some
0: people aren't. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Well, if I may throw something out here, Uh, these, again, these, these kinds of conversations aren't happening. It's as if there is no alternative to what is prevailing out there. And, you know, the silent majority, um, I, I think these conversations are really interesting because they're not bifurcated as pro or against hunting. That's not what they are even though the the people who get defensive will say you're opposed to hunting and it's ridiculous and FYI, I do a little
0: I, bit of that but not much
1: very, you know little, I catch oh go ahead sorry I will just saying there's
0: very little f- few people that come at me with like the I'm a the term is like green decoy that I'm not really deep down I'm anti-hunting or something like that
1: well well so at Mountain they'll journal, say
0: that you're some of the tropes are that I'm jealous of my brother that I'm just trying to keep it all to myself. Um, that I'm a, yeah, I'm a gatekeeper. Those, I guess, are the big ones. I'm, I'm jealous of my brother. I'm just trying to keep it all to myself. Well, it's freaking ridiculous, but it's,
1: it's you know, it's tough terrain. It's uh, so at mountain journal, um, I get crucified if I talk about growing up hunting, um, by really? certain people. Yeah. Oh yeah. I just get by your
0: readership or some sorry? of your, the people that work on that, that contribute.
1: No readers, readership. And, okay. and, you know, on the other hand, there are hunters who think that I'm like anti hunting and, what so we've, can I ask a
2: clarification on that? What's yeah. their perspective on the people that crucify you for being a hunter? Is it that, is it, what are they it's saying?
1: They, they think that hunting is immoral and that it's fundamentally unethical and there is no fair chase. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very um, militant, it can, it, it can be very militant on the animal rights side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then on the other side, it's if one calls out unethical hunting, you're accused of being a, a traitor. And we, we have to be able to talk about these issues. And, you know, look, everybody likes sex, but there are rules of engagement. And why can't there be rule? Why aren't there rules of, of engagement in hunting or how we talk about hunting? Why can't we, you know, you, Jim Zumbo says, we don't need to have a, an automatic weapon to hunt elk. And he gets blackballed um, from writing for his magazine. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Let's mix, let's mix it up. And um
0: yeah that's something that's yeah. in the zeitgeist for sure is that mm-hmm. hunters can't criticize other hunters that is something you'll hear Yeah,
2: there's that tribalism
1: so. it, but but here's something to think about so at mountain journal what i like to do on social media is anytime a state management agency from the region issues a press release about a poacher right I will share that because I do think that when one poaches public wildlife, that's a serious offense against the public. And, you know, I think that the more publicity becomes a disincentive to people who don't want to be shamed in that regard. So when I do that, there's no criticism from hunters of betraying hunting, even though the poachers, you know, claim Claim to be hunters. In some cases, they were famous hunters who got busted. And why can we call that out? But we, um, I mean, if we don't have wildlife, there ain't going to be anything to hunt.
0: Yeah. Uh, Jill Jill and I have, have a little daylight between us about, on our social media, on our Instagram account, we call people out by name. And, and Jill paraf- correct me if I'm wrong, Jill, Jill thinks that it's going to be harder to win hearts and minds by doing this. So one, like we put up lists of what some of the big celebrity folks shot into, we've been putting up lists of what they shot in 2022 <laughs> It's grotesque. It's like mm-hmm. 20 animal, 20 big game animals, like some guy like. John John Dudley, here I am doing it again, Jill. Sorry, saying his name <laughs> like two moose. This is a guy, John Dudley, speaking at the Pope and Young banquet. He's the keynote speaker. They just invited me to go and speak. Really? Which is like, why in the world would they want me there? Like, because I'm not going to mince words. I mean, I'm going to be like, that's why this they want. Guy me there. is the worst thing that I can imagine. For my sport, if everybody shot like that many animals, elk would be. And this is true. If every, if everybody with an elk license shot as many elk as he did this year, there'd be we'd have negative five million elk. Um, so, Doc, I got to get back to the question at hand. So, who do you? So can, let me. I want to so know. I want to know if Todd, where Todd comes down. I
2: know, but I, I have to put my my point forward on yeah, that. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So you attach a name with the twenty animals they shot. I'm all for attaching the twenty animals and saying, "Are we okay with this as a community? Condemning the action because when that per that person's really a nobody, and they're going to be gone, and the next person's going to come right in there, and they're going to, and then the next person after that. And when you introduce names, you introduce a lot of drama.
0: But now, okay, but him. just he's a legend. And these all, and Cam Haynes yep. is a legend. I Aaron know, Snyder and not, is a, that's what every young man wants to be. Every young man wants with a bow wants to be these people that are killing 20 animals a year. So, but go ahead. I want, yeah, continue on. I, I just mean, want, they might disappear, but they're, they're going to, I don't know. There's big names. They're big names.
2: And I'm more okay with like a list of all the big names versus singling out. I I just, I think it settles wrong with people. And I think people need to change their own minds. Like they have to come to their own conclusions. So they see something that they don't like. And then they see somebody doing that and they've already come to the conclusion that they don't like it. And so anybody that's doing that, but when you, When you call that a name, it kind of detracts from and distracts from the main issue because it does come with a lot of back and forth. And and like I said, there'll just be that other person to replace it. Um, yeah.
0: So that's and 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 you know, I'm very open to what you're saying. I don't mm -hmm. I I could see where we stopped doing stuff like that, but I don't have to really work on not using names on the podcast because it but yeah,
2: there, there is a place like where I think you could throw out a name here and there, but when it gets redundant, people start focusing on that and the name throwing and the name blaming game. Do you think there's... Do you want to weigh in?
0: I'm somewhere between a 1% and a 2% chance of saving hunting. Does it... Does using names move me closer to the 1% or closer to the 2%? You
1: know, this is an interesting... Um, issue. I I wrote a book about scientific whistleblowers in state and federal land management agencies in the late 1990s. And so I investigated hundreds of cases of whistleblowing. And what I found was, to speak to Jill's point, is if somebody did something illegal and they're charged, that's one thing but it's another thing when you um, just criticize somebody. Um, And what I will say though, is in the case of like federal land managers who are at a high GIS level, they're in a position where they're supposed to provide leadership on these issues. I mean, they're in charge of these issues. So I have no problem calling them out. But what I have found is Sometimes when you call people out, it's like a hornet's nest that the hornets will come and def- defend themselves, and they'll rally around the person because of the tribal nature. So you end up riling them, and you almost have a backlash that's more severe than the outcome that you had hoped to, to do. And, and that so that
0: manifests itself in the comments on some of these posts. Yeah. For sure.
1: So, so I think that I think that becomes an unforced error on that. You know, it's interesting. One can make references or allude to things without actually naming the name. Um, Now, Jill has seen me in some of my reporting where I I will mention the name of, say, a forest supervisor. And I do that because the media isn't asking these questions. You know, in, in one case, I asked this particular person, why aren't you dealing with sprawl that is impairing the ability of this federal land to be ecologically healthy? Why aren't you doing that? And that's because um, that person is in charge of that crown jewel national forest. If it were an underling, it might be a little bit different. But well, and you're asking questions, like you're posing yeah, it's quite, questions. Yeah, it's, it's questions. You're not. It's, yeah.
2: Yeah. You're not like marring that person.
1: No. Yeah. Or claiming illegal activity or anything like that. But Mm -hmm. yeah, calling them out. You know, sometimes some of that, what I found is one of the most powerful techniques is just to ask rhetorical questions Mm. because then your reader or your audience will answer those um, and you're not being didactic. You're not being preachy and telling them what they ought to think, um, because I think the silent majority actually would respond well to rhetorical questions. They get it um, of what. Yeah. And, and frankly, you know, when Mojo was formed, um, I was told that we would be lucky to have five thousand Facebook followers, and we have a quarter of a million. And in in five, six years, five years, five years, Mm -hmm. uh, around the world, uh, 40% in region, 60% beyond. I have banned 8,000 people. I have this rough running list. And if a, an anti-hunter says we should be hunting hunters, they're banned. If someone on the right says, you know, snowflakes are snowflake animal rights, people are pedophiles. You're done. And what I've tried to do is craft. Are you um, the
0: one that's adjudicating all that or you got somebody that does it?
1: Well, not now I have a colleague, but I did that before and I was just ruthless. And people said, well, you're censoring. And I said, absolutely. I am, you know, in a newspaper, a newspaper might get hundreds of letters to the editor and they might print 10 right Mm-hmm. So what we allow to stand are comments. It doesn't mean we can't agree to disagree or be passionate, but we are going to do that respectfully. And so I think what Mojo has succeeded at is there are people across the spectrum who weigh in and it's become this sort of town square on issues like that. And I'm really happy with that. That's um, cool. Yeah. But, yeah. but it has to be to this point, conversation it has to be refereed and adjudicated because what has disappointed me most is that adults will behave like children if left unchecked
0: yeah yeah we and so this yeah. our instagram the guy that's running it, he's this young guy in in colorado he's got a really good sensibility like to him and <laughs> I, I was told i was told jill that like i don't have access to our instagram anymore like it was proving incredibly unhealthy for me yeah um and we it's only we've only had it for like six weeks so i i had him change the password and block me um but uh uh he i got to see a chance to see how he works with stuff and yeah he's very loath to block someone and he interacts with people and tries to show them respect, and it's crazy. I was watching him turn people a lot toward towards being sympathetic with our cause just through having died. Asking yeah. questions, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, lots of yeah, questions, asking yeah. lots of questions, yeah. providing information, asking questions. Yeah, he's kind of special when it comes. To- <laughs> Once of all, I would comment, and it would just go south. You know, because I'm just not, yeah, I'm not. I, that's the thing. I'm not the right person, probably, to be trying to build coalesce around shared values because I'm so freaking bombastic sometimes.
1: You're important.
0: Well, thanks. Thank you. Any other questions, Jill?
1: No. Oh, come on fire a few up I it's getting late here
2: but um I don't I don't I don't know my brain is starting to melt
0: I'm yeah. oh on this right is, we've got plenty of good content here for an awesome hunk quietly episode uh Todd I, I really enjoyed this discussion and I just see so many parallels between what you're trying to accomplish and what I'm trying to accomplish. Maybe
2: it's like, I guess I do have a question. Yeah, go ahead. You know, just you've been at this for so long, Todd. And so, I mean, there's just ups and downs, you know, and you feeling that futileness of it or the you know, how, like, to keep it going. And especially because, like, Matt and I have day jobs, you know, and, and everybody else that's helping out has day jobs. And so that, you know, keep had to keep going and finding that inspiration and in the new avenue, you know, to talk about something new.
1: So how to find the inspiration?
2: Well, just, you know, yeah, to keep going and then having and then finding you know, the, the same talking points, right? Like you, you, like for you, it's like you want to save the GYE and you want people to rally around that cause. You have to find different angles to keep talking about it.
1: You, you know, I, I would be lying if I um, said that there are some days when I'm well beyond burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's, what's heartening is to watch the light bulb go off over people's heads when something happens and that power of revelation. um, What's really discouraging is it's it's, it's not the people that you think would be adversaries who are problematic. It's the people who are part of your tribe. And so I'll use an example. Bozeman has one of the highest per capita concentrations of paid environmentalists in the country. And they're good people, personal people. They're all good. The problem is, is that they're promoting industrial strength recreation because it's a pastime that we all partake in. And they assume that you should get a free pass. And if you're not, you're a traitor. And, you know, we have this resort in Montana called Big Sky that is like the ultra exclusive place um, where people go. And if that were a hard rock mine, the groups would be fundraising and opposing that to hell and back. But it's a ski area. And so what I've learned in this is, and this is where I just feel like giving up. Someone once said, well, you know, your stories are preaching to the choir this friend Dennis Glick said, Well, it's been a long time since the choir sang from the same hymnal. And things are so fractured now. Um, they're fractured on the government level, they're decision making, they're fractured within the enviro community. And you know, fractured thinking results in f- fragmented landscapes. Mm. And so I I I teeter at the edge of just throwing up my hands and saying, you know what? I could be out hunting or hiking or or doing something else and having a mindless job doing, you know, being a cook in a restaurant. But I don't know. I I just, this isn't like, uh, I don't feel righteous about this. This is really where science informs and where history informs. And, and it's why I have such respect for both of you um, in doing this. Um, with regard to Greater Yellowstone, I'm not a zealot or a fanatic or rabid about this. It's just having traveled as a journalist around the world and being able to see this place that is a miracle. And we've only been saved for really a handful of reasons. One is that we have the land base that's remained relatively unfragmented. Two, we've been remote. And three, we haven't had population pressure.
0: Yes, and by that, din of coincidence.
1: Yes. Yeah. So it, it it isn't it isn't necessarily that we've been brilliant. It's that, you know, geography has really been our salvation and it's allowed conservation to succeed where it's been more problematic elsewhere. And so I'll just share something with Dr. Chris Servine. You know, Chris was for 35 years head of National Grizzly Bear Recovery for the Fish and Wildlife Service. And for a few decades, he was so pro-delisting. And, you know, he thought states should be able to get management. There should be a sport hunt of bears, yada, yada, yada. Well, you know, he said to me a while back, he said, Mountain Journal's reporting on growth issues and on outdoor recreation, in addition to these draconian laws in Montana that are, you know, anti-predator. He said that that helped reframe his position. This was a guy, you know, in favor of delisting bears, and now he's opposed for the reasons that bears are not moving into secure habitat, that this um, sanguine outlook that we had for bears is not rosy after all, and that there are consequences of people moving in to live the dream of the TV melodrama, Yellowstone. So when I hear that, when I get things like that, or Jill, when I get to talk with you um, and I hear people, um, the conservationists of your generation are stepping up um, and, and, civil servancy, which is a really tough job. I get inspired or, Matt, when you stand up and you do this, you could easily not do it. Your life could be easier in some ways by just going along to get along. I mean, that's what inspires me to do it. And um, you know, you talk about the silent majority. I think there are a lot of us out there who who share these values, but we feel like we're blowing in the wind. And what we need is some sort of centrifugal, force that allows us to all come together. And to a certain degree, Mountain Journal's been that for a lot of people who have felt um, isolated in these COVID times, as we all have. You know, I was told that people would never accept long-form journalism, that it was dead, that you had to have these little sound bites USA Today style. And in fact, people have been reading this stuff and you know, I hear from civil servants. I get those calls at eight PM, and they they're like, "What do you want me to do?" Wow! So that and I'm that's and, and that's and I'm like, look, it's not about what I want you to do. It's it's what do you think should be done given mm. the variables of what you know? And I'll, I'll end on this: we can't force people, nor should we, to think like we do. People have to come to it honestly. That's where the power of the epiphany is. But there's one thing we can do is we can take these little pebbles that we can carry around, which are ideas of dissent that are that are not part of going along to get along. We can drop those pebbles in the back of hiking their hiking boots. And I'm speaking metaphorically here, but for people who have a conscience and they know know what the right thing is to do, but they suppress that. Those little pebbles in the back of their hiking boots, where they're feeling it and they're working it over in their own mind, that's how change happens. That's the one humble thing that I've learned. It doesn't come from a journalist wagging his finger at anybody, but we have to to let people arrive at the because then they're going to be advocates forever and we're dealing with things that once you see things or think things you can't unthink them and you can't unsee them that's the brilliant thing so i'm going to curse you at finally here and share this with your friends when you bring development and sprawl onto somebody else's radar screen and you tell them i bet you can't Not think about sprawl, or try not to think about sprawl. Every trip that you make through the Greater Yellowstone, you're going to be looking at sprawl, and the more you try not to think about it, you're going to see it. And so you two play a really important role. You're you're asking that kind of question. You're bringing this up about hunting ethics, and you know what the spirit of hunting is all about, and you're doing really great work you're dropping those pebbles in the back of of people's hiking boots and that's really important and it may not be it's not going to happen at a mass level but it can happen person to person so does that make sense
0: yeah it does um but it would take a lot of people to change things
1: i don't think so man I think that this podcast and the two of you on it is important. Um, people. Well, no. Who, what I'm saying is a lot of people would
0: have to sign on. Like there'd have to be a lot of pebbles and a lot of boots before.
1: You, you know what? Things can change quickly. Um, what we need are, are the big influencers um, to be able to sort of change. You know, kids these days. They all want their 15 minutes of fame. And so they look to the influencers and, you know, there's a person in the climbing community that I have an ongoing dialogue with and he refuses to budge on this stuff. And I've said, look, man, if you said we need to exercise restraint, all of your minions would embrace that as a virtue. Mm, And mm -hmm. so these, these influencers they've got to come on board and they know what to do, but they're, they're part of that monetizing and commodity thing. So that's why they're hesitant. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that's a lot.
0: Um, let, uh, I'm going to,
1: so I'm pro hunting, whatever, however you edit this, just make sure that I, I'm not. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I think that comes through. I think that comes through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thanks you two. I really appreciate the conversation.
1: Um. Yeah. And I've got someone you need to have on.
0: Oh. Okay. Yeah.
1: Dan Flores.
0: Oh, I've I know I've met Dan. I know Dan a little bit.
1: So um, he has the, he has this great book out, and it talks about kind of the backdrop of conservation. Hmm. And what he gets at in this, I, I when you called or when you pinged me, Jill, I was in the midst of it. Um, he talks about the decline of bison and that it wasn't just market hunters. It was horses. It was native predation with horses, you know, horses competing for rangeland. And it's really fascinating um, of w- what led to the decline. And it it isn't what I thought it was the sort of the st- simplistic story. And, and I think your brother would even learn a little bit from this. Um, hmm. but Dan, no, is, I,
0: I didn't know there was another, other factors other than just, just killing them.
1: No, hmm. just lots of, lots of different things that I, I wasn't, wasn't aware of, um, that uh, anyway, I'm going to write a column about that, but he, hmm. he does it. He's, So articulate, and he'd love being on your show.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, he'd be a great guest. All right. Thank you, guys.
2: Thank you, Todd. I really appreciate everything you're doing.
1: Well, back at you. And please, uh, one thing, Matt, please stay in touch, Jill. I mean, this stuff is really the stuff we're talking about. And I want to talk to you about the Wind River stuff that you've done a lot of work on professionally so and matt when you're in bozeman there's a beer do you drink beer mm-hmm. there's one with your name on it Baltimore. all right
0: all right next time i'm through i will take you up on that
1: all right hold those kiddos tight okay <laughs> all right all Thanks, right Thanks, Great you.
2: talking with
0: you yeah
1: you guys